Hi, I'm Copthorne MacDonald, and this Wisdom Page podcast episode is titled, What is Wisdom? Part 1. The content is adapted from Chapter 1 of my book, Toward Wisdom. Wisdom is not one thing. It is a whole array of better-than-ordinary ways of being and living and dealing with the world. Because of this, and because individual wise people express wisdom's characteristics in different ways and to different degrees, the question of what is wisdom has no brief answer. Short statements about wisdom can be helpful as long as we realize that each expresses only part of the truth. We could say, for example, that wisdom involves seeing things clearly, seeing things as they are, acting in prudent and effective ways, acting with the well-being of the whole in mind, deeply understanding the human-slash-cosmic situation, knowing when to act and when not to act, being able to handle whatever arises with peace of mind and an effective, compassionate, holistic response being able to anticipate potential problems and avoid them. Each of these statements helps clarify some aspect of wisdom, but none tells the whole story. The self-actualizing and ego-transcending people that Abraham Maslow studied were wise people, and Maslow's writings tell us much about the nature of wisdom. Maslow's self-actualizers focused on concerns outside of themselves, They like solitude and privacy more than the average person, and they tended to be more detached than ordinary from the dictates and expectations of their culture. They were interdirected people. They were creative, too, and appreciated the world around them with a sense of awe and wonder. In the love relationships, they respected the other's individuality and felt joy at the other's successes. They gave more love than most people, and needed less. Central to their lives was a set of values that Maslow called the being values, or B values. Wholeness, perfection, completion, justice, aliveness, richness, simplicity, beauty, goodness, uniqueness, effortlessness, playfulness, truth, honesty, reality, and self-sufficiency. The inner directedness that Maslow noted is a key feature of wisdom. It arises in part from acquiring new, more helpful perspectives. We live today in a swirl of information, and we need some of this raw data to arrive at the answers we seek. Knowledge, however, is interpreted data. If the perspective or conceptual model through which we interpret our data is inappropriate or flawed, then our knowledge is flawed and will lead us astray. For many people, the task of becoming wise is not one of absorbing more information, more raw facts. It is to put the significant facts they already have into appropriate contexts, to view them from more helpful perspectives. In later episodes from Toward Wisdom, I will attempt to show that we human beings acquired certain perspectives from evolution and culture which are, in fact, flawed perspectives, perspectives that limit and distort our understanding of reality. Certain biology-based perspectives, for example, 
arose to aid personal and species survival in more trying, more primitive times. Today they impede our movement toward a global kind of understanding. They impede our movement toward wisdom. Certain culture-based perspectives also stand in our way. Our industrial culture, in actualizing its values and looking out for its interests, has indoctrinated us with interpretive frameworks that reflect and promote those values and interests. It has passed on to us a set of approved ways of looking at things and has said, look at the data of life from these vantage points. Interpret your facts according to these guidelines. There's nothing unusual about this. All cultures do it. But cultural institutions that prompt us to see the world from a having, desiring, possessing, consuming perspective aren't leading us in the direction of wisdom, inner peace, and deeply felt contentment. Becoming wise requires that we adopt other perspectives, other interpretive frameworks, ones that do reveal truth and encourage movement toward holistic understanding and widespread well-being. The words of the great spiritual teachers have added much to our understanding of wisdom. So have the writing and thinking of the wisest of the world's leaders, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Gandhi, for example, and more recently, Gro Brundtland and Vaclav Havel. Writers of serious literature help by giving us literary role models, wise people and people in the process of becoming wise, Lawrence Durrell's Clea, for example, Herman Hesse's Damien, Nikos Kazantzakis's Zorba, and Kazantzakis himself in Report to Greco. Reading books by and about wise people can help us grasp the multifaceted nature of wisdom. Here, however, let us focus on a few specifics. Here and in part two, we'll look at five frequently encountered attributes of wisdom, five characteristics that appear to have special importance to us, the people of Earth, at the beginning of the 21st century. The first characteristic is a reality-seeking attitude. Wisdom, maturity, and happiness seem to go hand-in-hand with figuring out how life and the world work, with discovering the nature of the rules, laws, and programming that dictate what will happen under what conditions. Wise people know that the more deeply and accurately they come to understand key processes, within and without, the better able they are to live their personal lives in harmony with what is happening moment to moment. Wise people want to find out. Wise people are reality seekers. Developing an accurate, comprehensive picture of reality does not happen easily. We arrive on Earth having to play the game of existence, but not knowing the rules or even the object of the game. Then, gradually, each of us builds a worldview, a mental map of how it all is and what it's all about. The maps made by wise people are, in many respects, more complete and more accurate than the maps made by others. But for even the wisest, their picture of how it all is never becomes much more than a rough sketch. Despite talk about fully enlightened beings, I strongly suspect that no one has ever been completely out of the dark. Almost by definition, reality seekers remain open-minded, flexible, and receptive. 
They know that all explanations, models, and metaphors are just pointers to truth and crude maps of reality. All are approximate and partial. Further refinement of the maps is always in order, and since wise people are not ego-attached to their present views, when they do get new data or flip to a new perspective, their worldviews and explanatory words change. Spiritual teachers have created cosmologies, psychologies, and ethical systems. Many of their psychologies are similar. So-called mystical experiences are largely independent of specific information. Thus, they tend to be similar for everyone who has them. It is because of this that the perennial philosophy is perennial and independent of culture and geography. People who have seen the world from a perennial philosophy perspective recognize the reports of others who have done so. There is agreement. Cosmologies, on the other hand, tend to differ widely, leading me to suspect that they are based at least in part on culturally acquired information. If Gautama the Buddha lived today, I suspect that his psychology would not be much different, but that his cosmology would be. Imagine that the great reality seekers of ancient times, people like Jesus and Gautama, had continued to live on through the centuries. Do you share my guess that they would have made the transition into the present smoothly and organically, excited about each breakthrough in knowledge along the way, each widening and refining of their views? The great ones had to be open-minded reality seekers. It is their followers who have sometimes become closed and rigid, true believers, guardians of temple and church, who took each word of their leaders to be absolute truth. Words aren't truth. Wise people recognize this. They remain seekers rather than becoming believers. A reality-seeking attitude can also help us find ethical and moral truth. Many wise people of the past, spiritual leaders, philosophers, and great writers observed what works in human society and what doesn't. Over the centuries, their observations have been shared with an ever larger audience, yet their advice is largely ignored by each new generation. Moses was one of those wise people. Now, at this point in my life, I think that his Ten Commandments are a pretty good set of guidelines for living. Nevertheless, since first hearing about them at age five or six, I have lied, stolen, dishonored my father and mother, committed adultery, and more. We seem to find it very difficult to take someone else's word on ethical matters. We feel the need to explore life's limits for ourselves and come to our own conclusions. I don't think our distrust of do-what-I-say ethics will fundamentally change, and that's okay. We don't need new lists of do's and don'ts. We don't need new codes of conduct. They wouldn't really help. What does help is a reality-seeking attitude toward our own experience. Why do my relationships fall apart? Why do I keep getting myself into this kind of mess? What is reality telling me? What is the lesson in this? Is there a general rule of the game that I've missed up to now? Why is people ask themselves these kinds of questions, and when they do, the answers come? 
Wise people are attentive people, and their attention to what is not working well eventually leads to greater harmony. They know that the solution to a problem almost always lies in a clear understanding of the problem itself. Staying open is often uncomfortable. The pain of uncertainty, of growing, comes with the territory of human existence. A certain directivity toward perfection may well be built into the cosmic process and, as Maslow's research indicated, into each person. But the means to actualize perfection are not ideal. Some degree of discomfort appears to be the price of continual transcendence, continual replacement of old ways of seeing with new ways. A second characteristic of wisdom is non-reactive acceptance. As we will see in a future episode, part of evolution's legacy to the human species is the mammalian brain structure called the limbic system and the palette of intense reactive emotions associated with it. These strong emotions, fear, anger, lust, hatred, greed, craving, jealousy, envy, etc., are the cause of much human suffering. The person experiencing these forms of emotional reactivity suffers. And if reactive emotions take control of our behavior, others are often made to suffer too. Wise people have learned how to deal with reactive impulses so they don't become prolonged reactive states of mind, and they don't result in reactive behavior. Wise people don't rail against the present moment's informational content. They know that by the time we become aware of this moment's event, it has already taken place. Accepting it is therefore the only sane, rational response. It's not that wise people avoid acting. In the moment that follows, they may very well choose to act, but their actions are almost always guided by wiser centers of control. Their actions are not knee-jerk responses to impulses from the limbic brain. For the most part, wise people live non-reactively. They live in the present moment from a center of awareness, acceptance, energy, basic goodness, and quiet joy. They know that when fear is dropped, courage fills the mind. They know that when anger and hate are dropped, compassion is there. They know that when wanting and greed are dropped, mental peace, primal happiness, and equanimity will be present. A third characteristic of wisdom is holistic seeing. The attention and energy of most people is focused on their immediate situation. The intensity of their concern about other situations, people, and events drops rapidly as those things become more distant in space, time, and relationship. Concerns of wise people, on the other hand, go far beyond the immediate and the personal. They have acquired a variety of perspectives that I lump together under the umbrella phrase, holistic seeing. Many of these holistic perspectives are intellectual ones. An understanding of concepts like system, evolution, and problematique, for instance, can help us appreciate complexity, interconnectedness, and wholeness. When deeply understood, such concepts lead to more expansive, more holistic kinds of thinking. Let's touch briefly on the three I just mentioned.
a system is a whole that consists of interacting and interdependent components in a persisting pattern of relationship. The human body-mind is a system. The universe is a system. A TV set is a system. The relationships that define a system may involve events or spatial configurations or both. System components frequently capture our attention. We can see them directly. Unfortunately, system relationships tend not to be as flashy and grabby as the components. In some cases, they do not give rise to sensory messages at all and may totally escape our notice. To understand what is really going on in a system, it is often helpful to create a visual model of the relationships involved. We can look carefully at a radio's innards, for example, perhaps even name and count all the various parts. But unless we are familiar with what each component is capable of doing and can visualize the complex way in which they are interconnected, we won't know how or why the radio works. People who have thoroughly internalized the system concept realize that the bits and pieces around us don't tell the whole story. These people know that to really understand what is going on, you must also come to grips with the pattern of relationships that exist between and among those bits and pieces. Evolution is another key concept. In the most complete sense of that term, it is the complexification of the universe, a process of system building and information creating that has been going on since the Big Bang at t equals zero over 13 billion years ago. Using Jacques Monod's terms chance and necessity, we could say that evolution is driven by necessity and its details are elaborated by chance. Necessity in this case is the entire ensemble of natural laws working together. Chance is sometimes absolute randomness, as in quantum processes. It is also the unexpected and unpredictable that occurs when highly independent chains of cause and effect intersect. Two people living their individual lives are invited to the same party. A meteor traveling through the universe on one trajectory strikes the earth traveling through the universe on another. One of a hundred million sperm wins a race, enters an egg, and combines its genes with that egg's genes. Without grasp of evolutionary processes, we have little sense of our deep kinship with the universe. In addition, we fail to sense the role that we humans are now playing as active agents of evolution. Behind the uncommon term problematique lies a powerful perspective. I first encountered it in the 1972 Club of Rome report, Limits to Growth, and it changed forever the way I look at global difficulties. The idea behind the term is this. The world's people do not face a basketful of separate problems. The world's major problems, population growth, environmental degradation, resource depletion, etc., are so intimately linked that they are best thought of as facets of a single overarching problem, a problematique. To avoid making other aspects of the problem worse, our problem-solving must be done with all of it in mind, not just the particular aspect 
that happens to occupy center stage at the moment. We've now come to the end of part one of this exploration of the nature of wisdom. Part two, the next podcast episode, explores two additional characteristics of wisdom. The realization of oneness and behavior that benefits others. Thanks for listening, and check out the many wisdom-related resources available on the Wisdom page. It's at www.cop.com. I'll spell that out, www.cop.com. Bye for now.